Hey folks, welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Modes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in Deuteronomy 19, looking at the first half of the chapter on the laws concerning the cities of refuge. If you have not already, we invite you to sign up for the Theopolis app. A couple of recent releases on the app include Peter Lightheart's Notes on the Song of Songs, that is in ebook form, as well as a couple of ebooks from Jim Jordan, Who Rules the Land, The Meaning of the Noahic Covenant, and his book, The Dominion Trap. For those of you who have not yet signed up, there is a link down there in the show notes where you can sign up for an account and then download the app from the App Store. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy 19. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John. Uh, Brian Motes, our media director, is in the background. He'll be He's capturing the recording and we editing and smoothing everything out for you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. Uh, if you've been listening, you'll know that we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, and we're ha- about halfway through the book, going fairly slowly, spending a couple of episodes per chapter for the last uh, couple of months. A lot of details to consider, a lot of ramifications of the, the laws that are given here. Uh, and I'll repeat what I've said at the beginning of a number of our podcast episode, and that is that there's a long section of Deuteronomy that is organized by the Ten Commandments, by the Ten Words. Deuteronomy 5 gives us the Ten Words themselves in a slightly different form than we find in Exodus. But after chapter 5, there's about 20 chapters that are organized in sequence by the Ten Commandments. So we have a first word section, we have a second word section, a third word section, and so on. And we've gotten through the first five commandments up to chapter 18, the first half of the Decalogue, uh, and uh, looked at the fifth word in the last several episodes. The fifth word, interestingly, in the book of Deuteronomy is not about parents and honoring parents, but it's about other kinds of authorities, quasi-parental authorities that are established in Israel. uh, And uh, these quasi-parental authorities are quasi-paternal authorities primarily, are uh, representatives of Yahweh, who is the father of Israel, uh, and they should be honored as Yahweh is. Uh, Beginning with chapter 19, we're moving into the second half of the Decalogue, and particularly in chapter 19, we're starting to deal with the sixth word, uh, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. And for several chapters, one thing I want to raise when I open up the discussion is the question where the limits of this section are. Uh, But for, for a couple of chapters, at least, we have concerns that are come under the rubric of the sixth commandment. It's not just dealing with murder, but it's dealing with various facets of murder and even broadens out to questions about pre- preservation of life, uh, some economic rules. There are rules of war, which obviously have to do with killing. There are rules about uh, what you do if you find a, if there's a, a, a corpse that's found uh, that, and then the, uh, the murderer cannot be found. How does, how do you deal with that unsolved murder? Uh, so there's a host of different things, but they all come under this general category of thou shalt not kill. They all come under the gen- general category of violence, and particularly violence to persons, although as we'll see as we go through these chapters, violence to persons takes on a variety of different connotations. Uh, we'll be focusing on chapter 19 uh, in this episode, and particularly the first part of chapter 19. I'm not sure how far we'll get, but the first part of chapter 19, about a little more than half the chapter, deals with the city's refuge. Uh, and we've looked at cities of refuge in the past. Uh, they're brought up earlier in Deuteronomy uh, when Moses sets up cities of refuge in the Transjordan, that is in the eastern side of the Jordan, and sets up three cities there. Uh, and what he's instructing Israel to do, passing on the Lord's instructions, is that Israel is supposed to set up three cities of refuge in the Cisjordan, that is in the western side of the Jordan, so that uh, there are accessible cities of refuge to people both uh, on the west side of the Jordan and on the east side of the Jordan. And we'll talk about the the ramifications of that and the theology and rationale for that in just a moment. But uh, one thing that struck me as I was going through this section of chapter 19 is the repetition of a, a fairly innocuous, colorless word, uh, the word there. 
T-H-E-R-E. You go there. The manslayer goes there. He flees there, and there he will live. That doesn't seem like it's significant, that repetition of that word, until you see it against the background of the the most significant plays that Deuteronomy talks about. Back in Deuteronomy 12, that is a a law concerning the centralization of the sanctuary. Uh, There's going to be one place that the Lord is going to choose. His name is going to dwell there, and Israel is supposed to go there to offer their offerings to um, celebrate their feasts, the Lord's place is identified by the word there. And that the the, the Hebrew word sham uh, in Deuteronomy 12 is uh, reinforced by a set of puns. The word name is shame, shame, sham, name there. And the word for place or set is seem. So seem, shame, sham, place the name there. Those three words interact in Deuteronomy 12. So it fills a Again, a fairly innocuous common word there with some significance, the theological weight, uh, as we get to later parts of Deuteronomy. We've already commented on a number of places uh, about how that uh, centralization, that central sanctuary rule in chapter 12, affects other things in Israel's life. That Israel's life is reorganized around the fact that they're going to settle in the land and they're going to have one place where they go for sacrifice and feasts. Uh, And I think that one... uh, one of the implications of this link between the cities of refuge as places where the uh, where the manslayer manslayer flees there, and the central sanctuary that Israel goes to worship there, one of the theological implications is that you have you have a central sanctuary which is a kind of refuge for all of Israel. If somebody sins, they go to the central sanctuary, they offer sacrifice, they find uh, reconciliation and atonement, and so there's a there's a, a kind of a refuge that they can find in that central sanctuary. But in a different sense, the sanctuary uh, is now being spread out over the land. And so there are designated places, designated theirs, not just in the central sanctuary, which is initially in Shiloh and then in Jerusalem, not just there, but there are other other theirs where places where people can go and find life, where people can go and find protection from the consequences of their of their errors or their actions. So there's a, a kind of spreading out of sanctuary concerns that uh, goes out, um, radiating out, as it were, from the uh, from the central sanctuary. I also think that it's it's likely that one of the uh, another implication of this connection between chapter 12 and chapter 19, between the central sanctuary and the cities of refuge, is the fact that the central sanctuary and the activities there, the Offering a uh, offering a sacrifice, the reconciliation with Yahweh, that is foundational for what happens in the land. The liturgy that's performed there, which is a liturgy of reconciliation, a liturgy of atonement, uh, a liturgy of uh, forgiveness, that's essential groundwork for the public justice that exists in the land. And so you have, uh, and you have uh, ways of providing uh, refuge for those who accidentally shed blood. That are the ramif- it's a it's a ramification of the of the liturgies of the sanctuary. So we have a dynamic between the liturgy and the public justice that's out in the uh, out in the land. And that that's a dynamic that we see in other parts of the Pentateuch that uh, I think is being indicated here. I want to pose a question to y'all uh, as we get started on this section. Um, are we in agreement? First of all, that this is the beginning of a new section. That this is the sixth word section. And then uh, where are you seeing the, if that's true, if 19.1 is the beginning of a new section, what are the limits? Where does this section end? Uh, what's included and what's not included? Before we have a, a long, ugly argument about that, um, I just wanted to sort of uh, notice another connection with the um, sanctuary in these cities of refuge. In part, because I was thinking about it recently, Adonijah in um 1 Kings 1, and, and probably someone in the next chapter, um, Joab, they, they flee to the tent of the Lord and, and take hold of the horns of the altar, don't they, as, as they're fearful for their life. And it, it's not clear to me what the backdrop of that is, but there seems to be at least some kind of provision that's kind of fleeing to the sanctuary there is, is a place of safety when someone's seeking your life. I've taken that uh, in connection with the statements in in Leviticus that uh, anyone who touches most holy food or anyone who touches 
the holy furnishings of the tabernacle is consecrated by that. So you can be inadvertently consecrated. You become inadvertently sanctified. Uh, here, that doesn't mean sanctification in the moral sense that we use the term, but you're in it. You're placed in a uh, in an elevated status of holy or sac- uh, sanctified, consecrated uh, by contact with things that are most holy. And so it, it seems like going and grasping. You know, normally you would you couldn't go and grasp the horns of the altar. That would be prohibited because you you know you're going to be become a sacred personage. But it seems like something like that logic is going on. When you grasp the horns of the altar, you are in fact sanctified, and then you become kind of prohibited ground, uh, and you're you're safe from whoever's trying to to destroy you. Obviously, that doesn't work with uh, Joab or Adonijah. They're they're taken down from the horns of the altar. So uh, a guilty person is, doesn't actually get that kind of uh, immunity by touching the altar. But it seems like that that's the logic behind it. And these were all Levitical cities as well, which suggests there's something, maybe some connection with the sanctuary on that front. Back to your question about the section, the sixth word section, Peter, it seems pretty obvious that at least verse 13 of chapter 22 is where the seventh word would start. I have it marked in my Bible also that it might start in verse 9 of 22. Um, with the various uh, uh, mixtures of seeds. I don't remember exactly why, but uh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's more about uh, 22.8, uh, which is when you build a house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you might not bring blood guilt on your house if someone falls from it. So that's concerned with the shedding of blood which it connects it with the previous chapters, which have uh, repeatedly been concerned with the shedding of blood. So it's not so much that mixing of seeds or of an- plowing animals together is uh, that is an obvious link with the seventh word, but that verse eight seems to be clearly dealing still with the blood issue. Anybody have an alternative suggestion about uh, where the limits are? James James was itching for a knockdown drag out fight over the, over the limits of this passage. I was, but I didn't actually have a suggestion. I just wanted an argument, really. I've always seen 22 verse 8 as the final verse of this section. Yeah, that's that's what uh, uh, Jim Jordan does in his covenant sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. One of, the, one of the things that that does is include a lot of things under the sixth word that mm-hmm. seem, um, we can we can see roughly how they're included, but uh, it's they're not obvious applications of the sixth word, like... Uh, you know, chapter 21, 10 through 14, you get a war bride and she has to go through this kind of purification process before she enters Israel. You can see the connection because it's dealing with war, but um, it's a very, it's a fairly detailed and pretty specific uh, rule that has to do with taking war brides. The next section has to do with a man who has two wives. You can't favor the children of the loved wife over the children of the unloved wife. How does that come under the sixth word? Uh, rebellious sons, would come out of the sixth word. Interestingly, chapter 22 begins with the rule that uh, if you find your neighbor's animal wandering, you have to return it to him. Uh, and also includes a rule about uh, not taking eggs and a, and a hen uh, and uh, taking them both at the same time. You, you should not take the mother with the young. Uh, let the mother go. You take the eggs. Uh, so that, again, you can see a, you can see a, a rough connection not maybe not a rough connection. But you can see a connection with the sixth word, but l- looking at those those particular passages through the lens of the sixth word, I think uh, uh, expands what we realize is going on in in the "Thou shalt not murder" command. Yeah, the positive would be you know murdering is is hateful. It's a it's a way of uh, you know destroying your neighbor. But there's a lot of things in here that are also, for example, the property boundary kind of thing in the middle of chapter 19, not moving your neighbor's landmark. So this is, I mean, the Sixth Commandment is kind of the beginning of what we call the the second table of the law. I'm not sure whether that's the most accurate way to put it, but um, it's love your neighbor as yourself. So killing him is obviously the opposite of loving him. And so there's a number of things in here just that would regulate uh, how you treat your neighbor. Um, and that's the way I've, I've looked at that. 
Yeah, and I think that one of the one of the dimensions to it, I think, is the the fact that um, I, I, mean, I think of John Frame's discussions of the Ten Commandments. Of course, Frame uses uh, perspectives in everything that he writes about, but he he suggests that the ten words can each of them can be a perspective on the whole set of commandments. I think we probably talked about this early on when we talked about the ten words. We had another podcast series on the Ten Commandments. I'm sure we talked about it at that point. But you can take the command, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Idolatry is a lens through which you can look at all the other commandments. Uh, thou shalt not kill. Murder, violence is a lens through which you look at all the other commandments. And uh, by doing that, you can. Uh, it seems like something like that is going on in Deuteronomy. You're actually including things that look like they might belong elsewhere, but they're coming under the heading of one particular commandment. So you're invited to look at that that situation or that rule from the perspective of one of the commandments that is not doesn't seem overtly in view. We touched on this um, briefly, didn't we, as we were talking before we began? But at um, at this point in the overall flow of the um, book, Moses has already in chapter four um, set aside three cities on the um, east side of the. Jordan hasn't he and so he's now saying in verse two you shall um set apart um or, or God is saying this three cities for yourself in the land that the Lord God um is giving you to possess so this is kind of sort of something that is going to happen as they cross over into the Jordan and the um the the kind of shape and feel of the whole thing just strikes me as significant I mean you've got the the Jordan as the main divider and then they they have set up three cities on one side of it and they're now going to set uh three on the other side and and so you you have kind of um three on each side and and the way you're to divide up the land has this um same verb uh probably they have deal or something which is the same verb that comes in uh genesis when the lord divides up um uh you know night from day etc and um it feels that a lot of the these um provisions for refuge are almost building towards a sabbath but not quite getting there and so you've got three and three that kind of wants to be capped off by a day seven or or if we think um as alistair was mentioning of the fact that six of the um uh, that the six cities of refuge are part of the um, Levitical um, c- cities, part of the cities allotted to them. And there are 48 in total, um, six of which are cities of refuge. And so that's kind of building towards a, a 49th, but not quite getting there. And I, I wonder if the whole thing is meant to, in some way, just reflect the incompleteness of these provisions for refuge um you know blood has been shed and there isn't really an adequate price for that within the law there are provisions that kind of limit the loss of life and that do various things but it's still never put right and i wonder if kind of some of that um numerical imagery is, is pointing us towards that yeah, that's really helpful, and I, I I agree with you about the uh, uh, the latter the latter part of what you were saying. Um, but what, I have a suggestion, an alternative suggestion for the numbers, though. If we include the central sanctuary, the Shiloh is not a city of refuge. So if you have three city three and three cities of refuge, and then a central sanctuary, which is functioning in certain ways like a refuge for Israel as a whole, then you do it get you get to your seven. Uh, and then but, I mean, there's also a provision that there would be three more cities added. Verse 9 says, as the as Israel expands, then that new territory also has to have accessible cities of refuge. So they're increasing by threes, but if you include the central sanctuary, you're coming up with three plus three plus one, and then later three plus three plus three plus one, so seven and ten total. That's nice. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me that uh, the fact that these are cities that already are Canaanite cities, cities that already exist. It's not that uh, Israel, Israel does, uh, uh, Jericho, of course, is totally demolished. Um, There's some other cities that are burned to the ground, uh, but they inherit many of the cities. 
And what they're doing uh, is really repurposing cities that they have gotten from the Canaanites. So you have these Canaanite cities that are now being turned into cities that are intended to limit bloodshed. Uh, and it uh, it seems to me that that's a there's a kind of paradigmatic quality to that, that uh, the cities of refuge are emblematic of the direction or the trajectory of the conquest in general. Because Israel, Israel is inheriting a lot of Canaanite equipment and establishment. They inherit vineyards and houses and fields, orchards. They're not supposed to make war against the land. So the land is the land and its productivity is intact. But instead of just demolishing all that and starting over, they're dismantling is Canaanite life and particularly Canaanite worship. But then all of the plunder of Canaan, like the plunder of Egypt, is being devoted to uh, to the Lord. And so these cities, which you know, if I you know think back to the original city in the Bible, uh, a city that's founded on the blood of uh, of Abel, Cain's a city uh, implicitly founded on the blood of Abel. You have cities that are founded on the shedding of innocent blood, and those are being taken over and repurposed as cities that limit innocent blood. That seems to be the dynamic for the conquest in general. Should we see the Gibeonites as an instance of the principle of the city of refuge being applied in a very unique case? Can you expand on how you're seeing the connection? That they um, are, they become dedicated servants of the house of the Lord, water carriers and um, wood choppers and things like that. And they are kept in that perpetual state, um, unlike the um, regular person who flees to the city of refuge, who's released when the high priest dies. They also, um, their task is associated with a dedicated status. So they have to serve um, the work of the sanctuary. And if we're to see the city of refuge as a Levite city with the person fleeing there being in some sense dedicated, maybe they would be, while in the city of refuge, serving um, for that period of time. That that seems interesting insofar as in chapter um, 20, it goes straight on, doesn't it, to talk about people who um, do, as you go to war, kind of give themselves up and make, I think it uses the term, make peace with you, which kind of re- reminded me of the um, Gibeonites as, as I was looking through it. It certainly functions that way. Yeah, that's a good point, Alistair. It functions that way for the Gibeonites. If they had not submitted to Joshua, then they would have been demolished. They would have been uh, wiped out the way the rest of the Canaanites are being wiped out. So yeah, definitely uh, that covenant gives them a place of safety within the land, place of life within the land. One of the other things that I thought was intriguing here is the reference to roads in verse 3. You have these cities of refuge, and then so far as I can, I could find, this is the only reference to road maintenance in the law. Maybe there's some other places that imply it or state it. But it's interesting that they're supposed to have cleared roads, prepared roads, and you're supposed to have the cities of refuge that are spaced out across the land for the sake of easy transport to the cities of refuge. And the cities of refuge are places where uh, they can find life, like like the Gibeonites. Uh, verse verse 4, the manslayer f- can flee there and find life. At the end of verse 5, he may flee to one of the cities and live. So he's under threat of death, but then the city provides him and offers him the possibility of, uh, of life, an extension of life. Uh, but it has to be accessible, and the roads have to be cleared. And it, just interesting that the roads, that road maintenance comes up in this particular connection. Again, the the purpose of the law, uh, the city of refuge law, is to prevent further bloodshed, and so the roads facilitate that purpose. Make sure that manslayers can get to safety and to life rapidly. I think one of the commentators was uh, measuring this out. It's like if you're in Israel you're within a 30 mile radius of any of these cities. So that's what a couple hours, most people are going to live closer probably, which is a pretty gracious thing here. Um, and, and this is one of the things that struck me, Peter, you're talking about these cities and this, 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 these laws here being, you know, a window into the whole, whole purpose of them, of the Israelites being in the land. It strikes me that to begin a section on 
thou shalt not kill the sixth word with this, that's not something I think modern people would expect. We might expect a list of, of uh, punishments or even, you know, some more legalese about how to deal with murderers or, you know, that certainly comes at the end of this chapter. And, and But to start with this seems, you know, the Lord recognizes that there's going to be a lot of death, okay, but not all of it is murder. And so there has to be a way of distinguishing between murder and just accidental death. Um, and to start with this, to me, just uh, is, well, a couple things. One, it's just a, it shows the grace of Yahweh, um, that he's concerned about there being in the community a way to distinguish between uh, manslayers and murderers so that, as you said, Peter, so blood is not shed inappropriately and defiles the land. But also, in addition to that, just a kind of reminder to, I guess, I would say modern evangelicals, or we tend to read the Ten Commandments as, and it's certainly appropriate to read them as individual ethical kinds of uh, rules for us, for us as individuals, you know, don't kill. And yet, all of the law has this social function, and this this is what comes out in this whole section, is thou shalt not kill is not just something that's impressed on the individual's conscience, but it's something that's enshrined in the legal structure, in the in a social structure of Israel. All these things are about uh, making sure that people have the freedom to live and to also deal with death in a just way um, and not in an arbitrary way that would um, increase their guilt. Yeah, you sound like one of those theonomists, Jeff. I have to watch out for you. Oh, I had a I had a question that I'm kind of puzzling over. There's a couple of things that I'm I think are really intriguing here. A couple a number of details, but one thing that I puzzled over about the way this is supposed to work and the logic of the cities of refuge. I've mentioned a couple of times. We've all mentioned I think that the purpose of the cities of refuge is stated in verse ten. It's so that innocent blood will not be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and the bloods come on you. So you not the land is going to if the land is defiled with blood then the land, there's some language here that makes it sound like the land is almost ingesting the blood. Israel's prohibited from ingesting blood. The land shouldn't ingest blood. And when the land ingests blood, it gets sick and spews out the inhabitants. That's what's happened with the Canaanites. But uh, the innocent blood that's in view in verse 10 seems to be uh, the blood of a manslayer who has accidentally killed his friend and who has now killed by the avenger blood so his blood is innocent blood that shouldn't be spilled on the land so there's no explicit statement at least that the blood of the person who's slain accidentally defiles the land but if then the manslayer is put to death by the avenger blood then he's treated as uh, his blood is treated as innocent blood and that that does defile the land so that's I wasn't clear on what uh, which deaths bring defilement to the land. Should we assume that all manslaughter or manslaying, regardless of whether it was intentional or not, all of it defiles the land? And so, because the, because the land is defiled, the the manslayer has to go to the city of refuge until it's undefiled by the death of the high priest. Is that the dynamic here, uh, or is there something else going on? Because again, there's no reference that I can see to uh, the blood of the of the friend who gets killed being innocent blood that's defiled the land. Yeah, that, that that was roughly how I read it. I mean, if the um avenger of blood here kills someone who is innocent in the sense that he's a manslayer, he's done it accidentally, then that is innocent blood that's being shed. Now as you're saying, you could obviously say, well, innocent blood has already been shed. But I guess that's that's done, isn't it? And that's happened but this would be kind of slaying more innocent blood but deliberately um on top of it so it, it feels like that could be defiling in a way that the initial um incident wasn't defiling yeah so that raised the question of whether there's uh intentionality is the key difference here so 
the scenario that's given in verses four and five is unintentional killing, accidental. But if a, an avenger of blood carries out his his work and kills the manslayer, then he intends to do that, and that that counts as innocent blood shed on the land. So, but again, uh, but that just that just uh, raises another sort of question about does he then become a, a target? for another Avenger? I would think not, because I would think the Avenger blood is supposed to be carrying out a penalty of some sort. But um, I, I'm just not clear on how the where the blood is going. Part of it also seems to be a concern to deal with things through the proper agencies of the law, rather than through the cycles of vendetta and vengeance that would be exercised by private parties. And one of the things that would bring blood upon the people is when their affairs were carried out through these cycles of vengeance rather than through um, authorities established by the Lord. And fleeing to the city of refuge provides the mechanism by which in a society where there are not the same structures of policing, um, there isn't a standing army, um, there aren't the same um, settlements, there would be the possibility of justice being executed rather than just having cycles of violence and extrajudicial um, vigilante processes. The, the procedure in Joshua 20 uh, supports that, I think, Elster. So even the avenger in blood, even if he's pursuing in hot anger, as verse 6 says, he still has to come to the city of refuge and meet with the elders at the gate, uh, <clears throat> as does the man who flees from uh, whatever town or, or, or farm he's in and has accidentally killed somebody, he has to also appear before the elders. So there's this judicial process that, um, yeah, that's going to, to push, push, push against the kind of tribal uh, instinct of just, uh, you know, going after a person, you know, for vengeance sake. Um, the, um, I was going to say something else about, your point too, Peter. So the avenger of blood in an ordinary murder case will be able to purge the evil by executing the murderer and that he avenges the blood. But if the avenger of blood um, avenges the wrong person, the innocent party, then it seems to me like that that's what that, I've always read that, verse 10, to indicate that the avenger of blood went after the wrong person, an innocent person, and therefore that shedding of blood um, has brought guilt upon. And, and, and interestingly, tell me if this is accurate. I don't have my Hebrew Bible in front of me. In verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in your land. I'm assuming that's uh, plural. The, the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, plural, for inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon y'all. Um, so there's, a, again, this corporate kind of responsibility to ensure that the individual avenger of blood doesn't take matters into his own hand and commit what would be a, a real murder um, against someone who was simply a, a manslayer. Jeff, it's it's actually singular in in verse ten, but then I don't think that matters because it's singular everywhere. So, like you know, in the previous verse, provided you are careful to keep all this commandment, it's just you singular there. So, I I I I, I totally agree that a communal is in mind. Well, yeah, but yeah, but the reference is, of course, to Israel, I guess, to uh, uh, the nation as a whole. So that would be appropriate to be singular. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just to confirm your point, Jeff, if you looked at further at verse 12, if there is somebody who actually commits a murder and the, the difference is hating his neighbor, lying in wait for him. Uh, so it's, there's a, uh, it's premeditated, it's plotted, it's intentional killing. Uh, in verse 12, it says the elders of the city will hand him to the Avenger blood. So in that case, the Avenger blood is an agent of the law uh, and is uh carrying out the death penalty. Perhaps he's uh, the first to uh, hurl a stone. We've seen that kind of scenario earlier in Deuteronomy where 
witnesses are first to the cast the first stone against those who are convicted. But uh, yeah, so that that just confirms your point, Jeff. That uh, Avengers of Blood uh, are part of the institutional structure, but they need to target the right persons. And the City of Refuge is set up so that they they don't target the right persons. It's it's right for the Avenger of Blood to seek vengeance in certain circumstances if you actually have somebody who's guilty of murder. Uh, just one thought uh, on Alistair's comments. Uh, it reminds me of the dynamic that you have, in, and it, it appears in a lot of, you know, it's kind of a Girardian dynamic in some ways, but it appears in some ancient literature. I'm thinking particularly of Aeschylus's Orestian trilogy, which is begins with these cycles of violence, but then ends with uh, Athena intervening at the last minute and uh, instead of permitting the continuing cycles of violence, she establishes a court in Athens. And so you have this transition from family tribal enforcement of justice to civic enforcement of justice. And you have that same kind of contrast going on here in Deuteronomy. Also, just picking up on on what Alistair was saying in terms of this not getting um, tribal, but being dealt with in the right ways. In um, Joshua 20, I'm pretty sure I can't, find it now but the the um idea is that the person explains his case to the elders and then they stand before the congregation i, I think it might say that in numbers 35 as well um stand before the congregation for judgment now this would be a levitical um city and it, it would presumably be you know fa- fairly impartial in a in a sense i mean a because they're levites so it, it's not like kind of they're, they're tribally neutral in in that sense um anyway but they could be as we've been saying a fair distance away from the city where this um manslayer manslaughterer not sure that's the right word has come from and so you would have then really a whole congregation of levites giving um a communal judgment on this and it, it just seems that that is um yeah an, an apt way of not having partiality not having kind of um uh favoritism in in judgments but in ensuring that a good decision is um uh is arrived at here back up to uh, verse five this is one of the things that has intrigued me for a long time the specific case that's given here for accidental death and it just seems it's just weirdly specific that uh you know you could you could you could do without it in my bible uh, most of verse five is given as kind of an interpolation. You could go from when he kills him unintentionally, not hating him previously, he may flee to one of these cities and live to the end of verse five. You could skip all the specific scenario, but it's any specific place. It's a forest rather than a field or an orchard or vineyard or something. Uh, they're going out to cut wood. It's the ax head that flies off as he's trying to cut down the tree uh, and finds his friend, which is a weird uh, personification of the axe head <laughs> uh, flying along, looking for a head to bash in uh, so that he dies. Uh, and it, I, I don't have any sol- solution to this or even really any, any uh, coherent suggestions, but uh, it, it's always struck me as odd that uh, death by flying axe head would be the, the key example of uh, accidental death in ancient Israel. I, I can't imagine that this was a common kind of event. So why this Why this scenario that's being given? Why not something in the field? Why not just leave it very gen- generically? Why, why give this particular scenario? And any any thoughts on that? It feels like there's there's got to be something going on there that I, that's eluding me. Well, axe heads do seem to fall off. I mean, we have the floating axe head story in Second Kings, chapter six, which suggests that um, axe heads falling off wasn't an unknown situation. And if you had people around, they could be quite dangerous. But but the other weird thing about this is, generally speaking, when you're cutting wood, you're not you know, going over your neighbor and saying, hey, let's go cut wood together. <laughs> uh, it's generally something you do on your own homestead. So it's kind of odd that there would be a neighbor there when you're cutting wood just to add to the confusion. Yeah, just another, this gets us nowhere except that it's an interesting tidbit, but uh, uh, I mean, there there are other, obviously other Acts forest uh, references in the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 10 talks about Yahweh as a forester who's 
has his axe. Actually, Assyria is his axe, and he's chopping down the tree of Israel with with Assyria with his Assyrian axe. Uh, but also, is it uh, Psalm? I uh, should have should have checked on this. Psalm 74, 79, uh, 74, uh, which describes the destruction of the temple and describes the temple as a kind of forest. And you know, this that that makes sense. Its interior walls are covered with cedars of Lebanon. So going into the temple is among other things, it's going into a grove. It's a tree house. Uh, and um, enemies are raising their axes against the uh, against the forest of the of the temple uh, Solomon uh, in addition to the temple which has a kind of forest construction uh Solomon actually built one of his public buildings was the house of the forest of Lebanon so uh, that Psalm 74 comes to mind when I think about the scenario but it again that's just that's a reference that I suspect has some relevance but I don't know what it is yeah at this moment in the podcast the listener, is saying out loud, Peter, Peter, your Theopolitan imagination has driven you mad. <laughs> but aren't aren't the rest of you just tantalized by verse five? Yeah, yeah. I, I've 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 thought about this and I've I've I looked up various references to axes and I just couldn't couldn't get anywhere with it at all. I mean, it is a obviously it's a possible scenario, as Alistair says, and we we do have an an example of an axe head flying off. Um, but it just it's the the specificity of it is is odd uh, and the the details of it um, uh, make me make me think that there's a deliberate that's uh, uh, there's got it's got to be pointing us to something that's not on the surface i mean at the very least it's it's obviously an accident that occurs in the, like the the example given is an accident which occurs in the context of a reasonable um activity it's kind of doing something legitimate in order to kind of use the good produce of of the land etc you know it, it's it's not just some um superfluous task or something is it's happening in the context of of proper work you know yeah i i think that's the way i've always taken it too you know here you are you're living your life it's um ordinary life and something like this happens. But also, uh, remember, there's another reference to axes and trees uh, in the next chapter uh, with regard to warfare uh, when you besiege right. a city and uh, you you don't cut down certain trees. Um, and so trees are like humans. Trees are symbolic of human beings. So there may be something about that, but I don't know where to go with it. <laughs> so... The moral of the stories is don't don't confuse a human for a tree. Is is that the is that where we're going? Yeah, maybe. Uh, that's is just an interesting feature of this section of Deuteronomy. Uh, I can't remember which uh, commentary pointed this out, but one of the one of the terms that kind of unites this section is the word eights, which is doubles as both tree and wood. So I, I think that word is used three times in verse five, uh, and then it's scattered across the rest of this section. Uh, last being used uh, referring to the the nest in uh, that somebody finds in chapter 22 a nest that has eggs in it might be in a tree uh, but there's uh, 10 different references to trees or wood that are stretched out over these chapters so that again makes me think that there's something uh there's there's some significance in that thread I, maybe maybe we can just entice we've given enough to entice our listeners to solve the problem for us because that that does happen. They just uh, people can write in and let us know what we missed and how how to uh, figure all that out. The the last thing to say is about this is that is um, an ambiguous kind of situation because if you invited your neighbor out into the forest to kill him with an axe, you could do that, right? And then you could say that the axe had slipped off the handle, and so that kind of a case has to be adjudicated um so it's the avenger of blood whether it's a relative or whatever would be right in questioning whether uh, this guy actually took his neighbor out or his relative out in in the woods to kill him or whether an accident actually happened so fleeing to the city of refuge for adjudication makes sense yeah, that's that's a really good point, Jeff. And and I, one of the things I I noticed as I was puzzling, puzzling over verse five is the 
the language that's used is language that is used is used commonly in references to warfare. So the hand is a uh, hand with an implement in it, in it is a is a organ of warfare. Uh, he's going to cut down something. The head slips off and strikes or smites his friend. Oh, that's that's fine. But uh, there's another word here that uh, refers to, I guess, cutting down is what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, the the some of the some of the language that's used is language that's used in military context. Otherwise, so that's a great point that uh, the forest is a rather than out in the open in the field. He's a he's he's not a cane. Uh, he's going to be a, if this guy's a murderer, he's sneakier than Kane. He's going to go off where nobody can see him. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's a really helpful. That's a really helpful thought, Jeff. Is this the origin of the phrase to fly off the handle? Sorry, I think we're getting slightly off topic, but I was just intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go all the way down this rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm proud to have started it. I think we probably should say a few words about the Avenger blood. We've used that phrase several times. Uh, the word is goel, uh, which is used in, in a lot of different, a number of different contexts. Uh, I think we've come across it already in Deuteronomy when we're talking about, I can't remember if we have or not, but it, it's it's used in context where you have a redeemer who is buying a relative out of slavery, liberating him from slavery. Somebody who's paying off a debt, reliberating from debt slavery. Uh, there's some connection between the kinsman redeemer and the Leverett laws, a near relative who takes up the, I mean, that's in Ruth, the terminology of Goel is used to describe Boaz, who's taking up the duty of uh, carrying on the descent of a near kinsman by having children in his name. So the, the Avenger blood is typically used, it's typically an agent of life, relieving the burdens of debt and slavery. And, uh, giving life extended life to a relative and to his descendants uh here he's he's playing a different role but it's that double that double significance i think is uh is intriguing yeah i, I wondered if there was a way of viewing them in a consistent manner i wondered if you could say that um suppose someone gets into um debt and then sells his land the redeemer there the goel has the right not i guess the obligation but the um well is it not i'm not sure if it's an obligation or not but um he's entitled to buy back that land um he can sort of claim it back from its present um owner he, he's entitled to do that and i wonder if in in this case i mean sort of someone has been slain and if that has been deliberate the avenger of blood has the right to claim that person's life um, and so, uh, presumably, this Avenger of Blood would be not just some random guy, but some guy who happened to be closely associated with the murdered party. And so, I wondered if there was a kind of consistent way of viewing the terminology there. In both cases, someone's advocating for the interests of someone who has no ability to advocate for themselves. In the case of the person performing lever at marriage, um, that party has died, and so they're raising up seed for them um, when they are completely removed. And then in the other case, they're avenging them and ensuring that justice is executed for them against someone who has taken their life. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and uh, I mean, it connects with the kind of Christological dimensions of this institution. I mean, you can, you can think about the redemption that Christ brings as as the cluster of benefits and blessings that a that a goel brings to a uh, Jesus Jesus pays our debt uh, Jesus gives us life when we were cut off Jesus deliver liberates us from slavery uh, and all those cases he's doing it as as you say Alistair when we are in, you know when we are weak and we're incapable of doing any of those things for ourselves and he steps in and and is our advocate and and takes action on our behalf yes I mean if if you think about the parish Digmatic uh, case, you know, Israel were gods. You know, he he didn't have the obligation to re redeem them from Egypt, but he he certainly had the right, and then um and exercised that. Another Christological dimension to this uh, to the city's refuge. It's often brought up. It's not it's not here in Deuteronomy, 
but it's included in the rules that are laid out in numbers 35, which are overlap with the rules of uh, cities of refuge here. But that is the fact that the, it's the death of the high priest that opens up the city of refuge and uh, provides for um, it is liberated from confinement in the city of refuge uh, and uh, sometimes seen as a kind of purifying purifying action the the high priest in some way uh, bears the sins of Israel the high priest is a sin bearer and so his death is uh, removing the the uh, uh, the curse of bloodshed that uh, that the manslayer accidentally placed on the land and, and I think that opens up other kinds of dimensions kind of biblical theological scenarios that play off of this city of refuge idea one one is uh, Jim Jordan pointed this out many years ago the fact that uh, Aaron's death in the wilderness uh, is immediately followed by the first battles that begin the conquest and as soon as Aaron dies then they're battling Sihon and Og or I should say Og Sihon and Og uh, and beginning the conquest and it's the death of the death of the high priest which makes it makes the wilderness uh, appear to be something like a, a a place of refuge or a place of confinement until the high priest dies and they're able to come out of that and return to the land or go into the land. I thought of the uh, Passover as having some kind of linkage with the uh, city of refuge. You have a house of refuge when there's a, an avenger that's taking vengeance for the bloodshed of Israelite infants, but you're safe by shedding the blood of another and uh, that protects the house, and the house becomes a a place of safety in the midst of the land, uh, in the midst of in, in the midst of Egypt, while the event while the the angel of death is going around. So I think that uh, that connection between the death of the high priest, the death of a kind of substitute, and the establishment of a city of refuge or the opening of a city of refuge, because obviously the houses of Israel are city, houses of refuge, but they're also exiting those houses of refuge and going out the same night on the exodus. So that that uh, opens up some, again, biblical theological scenarios that uh, seem to play off these rules. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's ever stated explicitly, but surely kind of by default, Moses is the high priest now. Um, I mean, and unless it's kind of passed on to Aaron's son already. Um, but I mean, he he's going to um, die on... This side, if you like, I uh, on the far side um, of the Jordan, and afterwards, you know, these cities of refuge are going to be kind of established the other side of, of the Jordan. So it, it feels like there's the death of a high priest in in the very imminent future, anyway. A couple other uh, details I'll, I'll point to. One is uh, in verses eight through ten, when eight and nine, when uh, the Lord is saying that they should establish three additional cities of refuge as their land expands. We had this uh, brief reference to the command of uh, Deuteronomy 6, and uh, re- it's repeated throughout Deuteronomy, to love the Avi, your God, and to walk in his ways always, to keep his commandments, to uh, to guard his commandments, which links up the system of cities of refuge with that basic demand to love God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and heart, soul, and strength. So, one expression, there's a public expression of that love of God in the establishment of these cities of refuge uh, and the establishment of a system that prevents the shedding of innocent blood rather than multiplies the shedding of innocent blood. Uh, the last thing, uh, the other thing I want to point out was the uh, obvious fact we come to the end of this and the scenario in verses 11 through 13 is different. Here we have, again, deliberate murder, premeditated. He's lying in wait for him uh, and he strikes him. And then he's handed to the Avenger of Blood, and he's put to death, and he's not to be pitied. And that death, the death of the murderer, uh, is not blood on the land, but it purges the innocent blood. So there's there's death and there's death. Uh, there's the death that of the uh, manslayer who didn't intend to kill his friend. That pollutes the land. It needs to be dealt with. But then there's another kind of death that actually is purgative. And... Um, removes the innocent blood so that Israel is no longer in danger. Yes, we, we get that same um, uh, provision, I think, in Numbers 35, when it talks about if the death has been uh, deliberate, then the manslayer is not allowed to return to his city. And I think it says something like, you know, his um, the blood which has been shed cannot be atoned for other than 
um, by the man who who has shed it, kind of thing. And and so there there is that um, yeah that that eye for an eye as, aspect to it. You know, only the shedder of blood, only his life can uh, atone for the blood that that he has shed. And we'll see this more in the coming chapters, particularly in chapter twenty one. But there is vulnerability of the land where justice is not executed in cases of murder and injustice. If there is not um, the outworking of justice within the society at large, not just the certain parties vindicating themselves or executing vengeance, but if there is not justice executed by the whole society, then the society becomes liable for the blood that it has not avenged. And so even if there is the limitation upon the vengeance of individual parties, we have this clear sense that vengeance belongs to the Lord, but vengeance is also something that the Lord requires of his people. Um, blood that is not accounted for um, through justice is something that the whole people will be will be polluted by, not just the one who has shed that blood, but the people who have failed to execute justice in that case. Excellent point. Then yeah, I think the, the other another direction to take this is to again see that this is verses uh, eleven through thirteen are still part of the commandment, "Thou shalt not murder." Uh, and if we just take that commandment in isolation from the way that it's worked out and elaborated elsewhere in the Pentateuch, then we might think that that rules out war. Uh, verse tw- uh, chapter twenty shows us it doesn't. It rules out capital punishment. Uh, but here it's clear that it doesn't, uh, and in fact, capital capital punishment is required in order to cleanse the land from the shedding of innocent blood. So that's not prohibited by murder, but it's in the right kind of uh, justice. I think, including capital punishment, especially for murder, the right kind of justice is, in fact, uh, the uh, a way of keeping sixth word. It's not a it's not a violation of the sixth word. I think that comes out, especially in verse 13 and also verse 21, your eyes shall not pity. Uh, That seems to be a legal phrase, you know, legally in terms of um, the rightness of the execution. You shouldn't allow your pity, your affections, your emotion to influence what you're going to do. Of course, that doesn't mean that that, uh, you're going to rejoice in the fact that a human being is executed. I think one of the questions I have about this chapter and other chapters is the whole question about general equity. You know, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 19, the general equity of the law applies to us. We've talked about how these laws apply to the church, you know, given the right uh, corrections. But just in general, in terms of just society as well, if, if Israel is a model for the nations, then this is not just about the land of Israel, but it's also just about how to deal with um, especially murder, which in the punishment is not just the punishment for murder execution is not just limited to Israelite law, but your eyes shall not pity him. seems to me like it's, it's very easy for us, even especially maybe Christian culture or maybe even Israelite culture, since we're talking about love and loving your neighbor and caring for one another. It's easy for us to think somehow that we can be, we can pity the man or the woman and allow them to escape the punishment. And that somehow is going to be loving or maybe just, you know, careful, careful that, you know, we've maybe, maybe we're just not exactly quite sure about our decision, but this is pretty serious. Your eyes shall not pity him, purge the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel so that may be well with you. Okay well with you. So wellness in the land of Israel depends on the judges, the elders, the avengers of blood executing justice and especially against murderers. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.